We're reading Joshua chapter 2. And Joshua, the son of Nun, sent two men secretly from Shittim as spies, saying, Go, view the land, especially Jericho. And they went and came into the house of a prostitute whose name was Rahab and lodged there. And it was told to the king of Jericho, Behold, men of Israel have come here tonight to search out the land. Then the king of Jericho sent to Rahab, saying, Bring out the men who have come to you, who entered your house, for they have come to search out all the land. But the woman had taken the two men and hidden them, and she said, True, the men came to me, but I did not know where they were from. And when the gate was about to be closed at dark, the men went out, and I do not know where the men went. Pursue them quickly, for you will overtake them. But she had brought them up to the roof and hid them with the stalks of flax that she had laid in order on the roof. So the men pursued after them on the way to the Jordan as far as the fords, and the gate was shut as soon as the pursuers had gone out. Before the men lay down, she came up to them on the roof and said to the men, I know that the Lord has given you the land and that the fear of you has fallen upon us, and that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt, and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon and Og, whom you devoted to destruction. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted, and there was no spirit left in any man because of you, For the Lord your God, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. Now then, please swear to me by the Lord that as I have dealt kindly with you, you also will deal kindly with my father's house and give me a sure sign that you will save alive my father and mother, my brothers and sisters and all who belong to them and deliver our lives from death. And the men said to her, our life for yours, even to death. If you do not tell this business of ours, then when the Lord gives us the land, we will deal kindly and faithfully with you. Then she let them down by a rope through the window, for her house was built into the city wall, so that she lived in the wall. And she said to them, go into the hills, or the pursuers will encounter you, and hide there three days until the pursuers have returned. Then afterward you may go your way. The men said to her, We will be guiltless with respect to this oath of yours that you have made us swear. Behold, when we come into the land, you shall tie this scarlet cord in the window through which you let us down, and you shall gather into your house your father and mother, your brothers and all your father's household. Then if anyone goes out of the doors of your house into the street, his blood shall be on his own head, and we shall be guiltless. But if a hand is laid on anyone who is with you in the house, his blood shall be on our head. But if you tell this business of ours, then we shall be guiltless with respect to your oath that you have made us swear. And she said, according to your words, so be it. Then she sent them away and they departed, and she tied the scarlet cord in the window. They departed and went into the hills and remained there three days until the pursuers returned, and the pursuers searched all along the way and found nothing. Then the two men returned. They came down from the hills and passed over and came to Joshua, the son of Nun. And they told him all that had happened to them. And they said to Joshua, truly the Lord has given all the land into our hands. And also all the inhabitants of the land melt away because of us. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful for a word that is just on time. For a story that, Lord, even though feels like at first glance perhaps really far away from us is precisely what we need to hear. And so, God, we've come together on this rainy Sunday looking for light, light that penetrates the darkness and the darkness flees. So would you come? Would you make our hearts and our minds ready as you've been doing all morning through worship? This is indeed how we fight our battles. Make us ready to receive your word, Lord God. Speak through this broken instrument that you would strike a straight blow with a crooked stick and that all of us, Lord, would be transformed because of you. It is to you that we look, Yahweh. It is to you that we cry, Lord Jesus. 
have your way in this place. To all other voices, be silent in Jesus' name. Come, Holy Spirit, now. In the matchless name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. All right, so as is our habit, a question as we begin, what does it mean when we say something along the lines of boys rule? This is a picture of our latest uh, men's outing to the Boulders game, which was so fun. If you missed it, don't miss the next one. Don't miss the men's breakfast. Um, but we, you've heard phrases like this, right? Boys rule. Or how about the other side of it? Girls rule. Right? Like, that, that's another common phrase that we're used to hearing around town. And we say it in jest and we laugh about it like Yvonne's doing right here, right? Like, but what does it mean that when we say that? What, what, what does it mean when we say giants rule? Oh. For my fellow Giants fans, you know why this is a really hard picture this morning, right? Because not only did the Giants get demolished again, but Saquon is now injured. And so... The Giants' ruling hasn't happened for quite some time, but we still say it. What about when we say something like, the Mounties rule? Suffering Mounties in the house? Amen? Come on. Wow, that was weak and pathetic. Right? But this is a picture of some of our soul youth and young lifers who gathered together to root on the Mounties. When we talk about something ruling, we're making a statement on two levels. It's a declaration of value and of allegiance. We're saying of the value of this thing, there's nothing more valuable than this team. There's nothing more valuable than this person. There's nothing more valuable than this objective. This is why it rules. But we're also declaring allegiance. We're saying we're going to live as though this has ultimate value. That there's nothing above and that there's nothing that can take its place. So when it comes to the Giants, we're going to buy Giants paraphernalia. We're going to go to their games. We're going to root for them. We're going to stand and cheer. That's what it looks like to live as one who has allegiance to the team that we say rules. But the question is, how do we live in a way that is consistent with the declaration that says Yahweh rules? How do we order our lives in a way that says there's no one above God? Not even me. There's no other voice I'm going to listen to. There's no other power I'm going to bow down to. I'm going to order my life in a way that declares Yahweh rules. Yahweh is the name of God, in case you missed it. That's God's name. He says, I am. I'm the great I am. In Hebrew, that's Yahweh. I am. What does it mean to live as though Yahweh rules? As we continue in our sermon series that we're now three weeks into, this series through the book of Joshua, we're going to unpack this question this morning, but in the broader context of what's going on in their culture and in their world. Because you see, where we've been, and maybe a little uh, background to how we get to where we're at this morning, is simply this. The people of Israel have just wandered through the wilderness for 40 years. Remember, God brought them out of slavery in Egypt. They were there for 400 years. God frees them, brings them to the edge of the promised land known as Canaan, and he says, you're going to have this land. This is your inheritance. And they're afraid. Why are they afraid? Do you remember what's in the land? Giants. Not Big Blue from New York. Tall, massive warriors, right? Giants in the land, and they're afraid. And so they, they say, no, we can't do this. And did you catch the word they used? We can't do this. We don't rule. But that was never the issue, was it? The issue was Yahweh rules. And so if he's given you the land, it's already yours. And so they wander for 40 years. Now they're at the edge of the promised land and they're faced with the same giants, the same situation. What are they going to do? And from the beginning, Yahweh says over and over and over again, be strong and courageous and do not fear. For the Lord your God, Yahweh your God, will be with you wherever you go. He's saying, I understood what you got wrong. You thought I was going to leave you. You thought I was asking you to do something on your own strength. But I've never asked you to do that. And I'll never leave you. Be strong and courageous and do not fear. For Yahweh, your God, will be with you wherever you go. And as Tommy preached about last week, this, this whole life, let alone this idea of inheriting 
the, the land that God has given us of pursuing and fighting for the inheritance that is ours in the Lord is a group project. It's not something that he's called us to do alone, which in case you've missed it, is one of the primary tactics of the enemy. Tommy said it even this morning, how sad it is that so many men in our culture are lonely. You ask the guys even in this room, who's, who's your best friend? And you know what most guys will tell you? I don't have one. Or they'll say, it's my wife, but they don't mean it. <laughs> Sorry, guys. Sorry to call you out, right? Like, right? The enemy wants us to be alone because when we are alone, he can have his way with us. It's why the very first thing in all of creation that God says wasn't good was when he looked down and he saw the one made perfectly in his image and he said it's not good that Adam is alone. Do you see? It is a group project that God has called us to. But this morning, the theme that we're going to unpack is simply this, living as if Yahweh actually rules. That's where we're going. So we're going to talk about all morning and just fair warning, it's going to get a little weird. It's going to take you beyond your expectations, and it's going to challenge you in a lot of ways. But we'll talk to that when we get to it. But I just want to get you ready for where God is taking us in this passage. So first of all, in verse 1, it says, Joshua sends spies. I hope you saw the redemption in that very, very first verse. Because Joshua was one of the 12 spies that originally went to spy out the land 40 years earlier. And of the 12, only two came back with a positive report. Joshua and Caleb. Thank you. Joshua and Caleb. Joshua and Caleb come back. So two out of the 12. So when Joshua, who's the leader, decides he's going to send spies, how many does he send? Only two. I only want the strong and courageous report. I only want the faith-filled report. This time, we're not going to hear the naysayers. We're only going to listen to the men of faith. Amen. Yahweh rules. Verse 2. Immediately as they enter into the land, it says they go and they stay with Rahab or Rahav. That's how you'd say it in Hebrew. Rahab, right? So they're staying with her, but it says from the beginning that she's a prostitute. Now, please let me unpack this for just a moment. Because in the ancient world, we've talked about this before, to be a prostitute was not what some in our culture consider prostitution, right? So there are some in our culture who choose a life of prostitution. But can I just tell you that no one in their right mind chooses a life of prostitution? And so even those who are on the news and on these talk shows talking about how freeing it is, please don't misunderstand. They are living out of their abuse, living out of the darkness, believing a lie. And even if it was their choice, it was rooted in abuse that they didn't have a choice but to live through. So please don't mistake anything you hear out there. When people say, oh, the life of prostitution, streetwalking, like in California when they're passing laws to make streetwalkers legal now, right? That's a really reputable, wonderful, life-giving uh, occupation. It's nothing of the sort. It's of the devil. It's going to produce nothing but death in that person and everyone who unites themselves sexually with that person. Make no mistake about it. It is not free. No one in their right mind chooses to be a prostitute. And in the ancient world, it was no different because in the ancient world, women had no rights, legally had no rights. So if you got married and your husband died and your, your parents were not ready to take you back in, if your dad was still alive, guess what you were left to do? Be a prostitute. You couldn't own land. You couldn't buy anything. You couldn't go out there and get a job. You could not. And so prostitution was forced upon women. It was the only way to survive. It is a, an image, a picture of the oppression of the patriarchy in the ancient world. And so when you read that Rahab is a prostitute, first hear this. She is a victim of her culture and her circumstance. And yet at the same time, even as that's true, she's still living the life of, of a prostitute. What gets her there is not her responsibility or fault. What keeps her there is. It is both 
corporate responsibility and individual responsibility, both at the same time. And so you see this messy situation with Rahab, who's a prostitute, who's a, a picture of what's broken in the community, but also a picture of what's broken in her heart and where she herself has probably been abused and has absolutely been abused since that choosing that lifestyle or living into that lifestyle. And then what does she do? When she hides these spies, she lies. She lies several times over to the king who comes to try to find out these spies, where they're at, what they're doing, and why they've come. She flat out lies. And I love that this story is in the Bible. Because it's messy. When you look at the medieval artwork of the saints, what do they all have over their heads? Bing! Ah! Right? When you walk through life, do you hear that noise? Ah! If you do, it's called tinnitus. You need to go to see your doctor. The ringing is supposed to go away right? Like, we don't walk through life that way. We don't glow. We're not that way. God knows who we are in our flesh. He sees us in our struggles. And so when you see the story of Rahab in the Bible, please see your own. Because the one who already knows you down to the depths, all that stuff you think you're hiding, all the stuff you don't want anyone to know, all the ways you've coped with that, trying to make it better and they don't work, he already knows. And he chooses you. He chooses you. In the same way that he chooses Rahab, which by the way, Rahav in Hebrew means overcomer which is what we're going to see play out in this story throughout history, is her story is the story not of someone whose life fell apart and then she died, but of someone whose life completely falls apart. She then lives in sin, and God comes and rescues her, and she overcomes. Your story is in the Bible thousands of years before you ever stepped foot on this planet. He was thinking of you. I hope you see that, friends. Rahab was also a prophet. Did you hear that? She speaks words of prophecy directly to the two spies. She says, I know that Yahweh God has given this land into your hands. There's been no battle. Nothing has been done. How does she know this? Except that Yahweh God has told her so. Hearing from God and choosing to believe what God has spoken is what prophecy is all about. She is speaking prophetically and then declaring the truth of what has actually already taken place, which is called harem warfare. Can you say that with me? You hear, you hear it back here? <laughs> harem warfare. Can you do that? Harem warfare. Harem warfare is in our English translations, it is, it is translated devoted to destruction. Or sometimes people refer to it as holy war. Well, the question is, what is this holy war actually all about? Why does God devote things to destruction? And just to be clear, to be devoted to destruction means this, everything living dies. Even the trees and the plants are burned to the ground. It's in our Bible. The heck are we supposed to do with that? Well, this is where it gets a little weird, friends. Just warning you. I want you to open up your heart and your mind and listen to what I'm saying because I think we need to create a foundation for what's going on, a framework for what's going on in the spiritual realm. Because if all you do is read the book of Joshua and understand it from a physical perspective, number one, you've misunderstood why we have the Bible at all. It's never been about the physical realm. It's always been about the spiritual realm. And then the physical realm being created to be a part of that spiritual realm. And then the two one day becoming one reality. But what actually rules today is the spiritual realm. Remember the prayer that Jesus taught us to pray? Thy will be done. Thy kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. When God gave plans to Moses to build the temple, what did he say? Build it like what you saw in heaven. What is 
the, the archetype, what is the ultimate, heaven is, not earth. Earth is the shadow. Earth is the temporary. Earth is where we play out this drama called history, but the thing that's going to last forever is heaven. We will have a new earth, and we'll get to that. But the reality is, friends, if we only ever deal with what we see, we've completely misunderstood who God is and who we are. So show us, Lord, how to see what we maybe, maybe we've never seen before. Not because we, it's so weird, it's wrong. It's weird because we're not used to it. So when, when, when our definition of what's possible is simply what's in the scope of my experience, then please realize we never landed on the moon because I've never landed on the moon. Please, please realize Tasmania and all those crazy animals, they don't exist because I've never been there. Please realize that knee replacement is an absolute farce. It doesn't happen. Why? Because I've never had one. If what is true is limited to the scope of my experience, then I am simply limited to my experience. Now, it can be weird if you go back 200 years and you tell someone, listen, we're going to lie someone down on the table. We're going to give them some gas to, to breathe that takes them really close to death and slows their heart rate down. Then we're going to chop the bottom of their leg off, put metal in between two bones, and then screw everything back together, sew up the, the skin around it, and they're going to be walking that same day. Knee replacement, right? They'd be like, you're out of your mind, dude. If you chop someone's leg off while you've already slowed their heart rate, you know what they're going to do? Die. That's the only thing they would have thought was possible because of the scope of their experience. But God's not limited to the scope of our experience. Have you ever just said something and it became what, what you wanted? Cupcake, and there it is, and you eat it, right? That's creation ex nihilo, out of nothing. I've never created anything out of nothing, but that's the only way God created, ex nihilo, out of nothing. God said, let there be, and there was, because none of it existed before. So you know the big problem with the Big Bang? Like, you have these particles. Okay, where'd the particles come from? And then these particles, they explode, and they go from chaos to order, which defies the laws of physics. Except, of course, if you have the God behind it who creates this Big Bang when he says, let there be, and boom, there it is. We believe in the Big Bang, friends. We just know the one holding the gun. Right? So creation is one of those biblical stories that takes us well beyond our scope of experience. And even what we think is possible, creation ex nihilo, but it's there. What about the Exodus? Where God comes in and sends 10 plagues, random plagues, right? Like, I know, what would be a really good fun thing to do to Pharaoh? Let's send a whole bunch of frogs. Because everyone loves frogs, right? Wrong. He's attacking systematically every demon, idol, a demon, an idol, the same reality. Every demon in Egypt, he's attacking by name. They worship the Nile, the Nile turns to blood. They worship the sun god Ra, the, the, the sun goes dark. They worship the goddess of fertility who happens to be a frog, and they are riddled with frogs. What is Yahweh God saying? There's no one who rules but me and I will stop at nothing from setting my people free. Amen. What is possible for God is not limited to the scope of our experience, let alone Jonah, the virgin birth. We can keep going on. I'm not going to keep going down that. You know where we're going with this. The, pro the issue is this. We must do exegesis, not eisegesis. Exegesis is when we come to a text and we allow the text to speak what the text itself is saying in the context of the text. That was very confusing, wasn't it? When we allow the Bible to speak in its own context, so the book of Genesis, the Pentateuch, the broader Bible, but also within the context of the culture of its audience. Because if I tell a first century audience a story about knee replacement, they're gonna think I'm from Mars. But if I tell a 21st century 
uh, audience a story about leeching, you know, when you're sick and they put a leech on you and it, it gets the blood out and that makes you all better. You're not going to think I'm from Mars. You're going to think I'm nuts, <laughs> right? But both of those were scientific realities at one point. One still is. Thankfully, the other's not. I'll leave you to decide which one's which, right? <laughs> the, the reality is we have to let the Bible speak within its own context if we're going to understand what that first century audience actually understood this to be. Exegesis, not eisegesis. Think I-segesis. I bring my context, my presuppositions, my desires to the text, and I read them through that lens, which, by the way, is the way most of us read the Bible. When you go to the Psalms, Tommy loves the Psalms, by the way. Just kidding, he doesn't. When you go to the Psalms, right, and, and there you hear the heart of David crying out for the Lord, where, O oh Lord, how long, O oh Lord? How long, O oh Lord, will you keep silent? How long will you deny my pleas for mercy? And all you do is hear that as your own heart. You've misunderstood the Bible. If you first hear it as David's heart and see it in that context and then understand that this psalm was actually fulfilled in Jesus and you go to Jesus next, then, friends, when you get to you, you know what happens? It isn't a psalm that has a loose end. It's a psalm that has found its completion in Jesus. And so you can find your voice that complains when it feels like life is falling apart, but you can also find God's answer in his only son, Jesus, the better David, the true king, the one who sings the psalms with his very life. Eisegesis is not what we're called to do. Exegesis is. Now, why do I say this? Because there's something called the divine counsel that we read about all over the Bible, but we skip right over because we're uncomfortable with this notion that just in the same way that there are fleshly image bearers called human beings for God, there are spiritual imagers of God. God has made, we call them angels, Heavenly hosts are the names we're used to using for them, but those are general terms. But even within angels, think about it. We, when we talk about Gabriel and Michael, what do we say? They are what kind of angels? Archangels. What's an archangel? Higher level. You're talking about levels of authority. And so when we're talking about the divine council, we're literally talking about a council of spiritual beings that are all known as Elohim. Please do not misunderstand what I'm saying. There is only one Almighty. Yahweh is his name. There is no other Elohim like him. That's the Bible's language. But there are lots of Elohim, little gods, created spiritual beings, right? That's the Bible's language. So when we talk about Elohim, big E, the God, there's only one. But when we talk about the gods, Elohim, there's lots of them. There's lots of them. And you see them show up all throughout the scriptures. The gods of the Canaanites and Moabites. The gods of the Perizzites, right? The Bible talks about them all over the place. But you know what we do when we read that language? We're like, well, that's weird. They're just dumb, right? They're, they're old, old-fashioned. They're in the Old Testament. They're dumb. They don't know what they're doing. We don't worship those gods. We know that those gods are fake. Oh, really? If that is at all your perspective, please be honest, but please keep listening. Psalm 82.1 says, God has taken his place in the divine council. Whoa. In the midst of the gods, Elohim, he holds judgment. That's our Bible, friends. In the midst of the gods, God has taken his place in the divine council. In Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, it says, God says, let us make man in our image. And we also oftentimes read that as Trinitarian. That's Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And that's wonderful. It's not untrue. It's just anachronistic. That, for, that ancient culture never would have understood that to be a Trinitarian reference because they understood God to be one. So it had to mean something to them. 
What could it possibly mean to them but that God was referencing his divine counsel like he always does when he's making decisions? Let us make man. Now, don't misunderstand. God's then the one who makes man in his image. It says it goes from the plural to the singular. I'm going to make man now. What about this passage that we, we always pass over? In Job, the beginning of Job, when Job, this really godly guy, is living a really godly life, and then it says, the sons of God came to present themselves to Yahweh, and Satan was with them. And we're like, that's so weird, I don't ever want to read that passage again. It is absolutely weird, unless you live in the ancient culture, unless you live by their worldview and you see that this is a part of what ancient religion was all about. The high God keeping a divine counsel and in that divine counsel making decisions. Now, why does this actually matter? Well, because first of all, you see the echo of that and its corruption all throughout the ancient world, right? We call this in Greek and Rome the pantheon. We call this in Mesopotamia the apkalu. Right? It's just the gathering of the gods. But you know what's crazy? In the same way that the enemy, the enemy always knows who his enemy is. And so in all of these gatherings of the gods, you know what keeps happening? The high god gets corrupted. And the son of the high god gets corrupted. Hmm. I wonder who they're trying to take out. When they don't want a high God who is almighty. I wonder who they're trying to take out when they don't want a son who is pure and clean like a lamb without spot or wrinkle. Yahweh's divine counsel, again according to the scriptures and the ancient worldview, meets in his throne room. And again, we see this all throughout the scriptures. You see it in all the garden and mountain imagery, Mount Zion, Mount Sinai, in the garden itself. It's the reason why Jesus spends so much time in gardens and on mountains. He's declaring something. I'm coming into the presence of my Father. And in the ancient world, that happened in gardens and mountains. Why gardens and mountains? Why do you have all these ancient kings who when they, de when they defeat their enemies, they build gardens? They're just like Winslow. They, love, they have a green thumb. They love to, to garden. Think about it. In the ancient world, you had to live by what you could grow, whether it's plants or animals. And so for a king to come in and show his military might and then turn around and grow a lush garden, he's declaring what their religion says is true. I truly am a son of the gods. I have power over creation. So Jesus spends lots of times in gardens and in mountains. Why? Because they're high up. They're up in the heavens. That's exalted. That's where the gods live. And you see that in Revelation, the heavenly throne room, right, where you see the Lamb of God. And you see God Almighty sitting on the throne. And you've got the 12 elders that gather around and the four living creatures. And then this whole picture culminates at the end of the book of Revelation, where you see heaven and earth becoming one. And where do they live again? Oh, that's right. It's called a city, the New Jerusalem, but it's described in particular detail as a garden. A garden that no longer has a tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which means there's no sin. It still has two main trees, though, and both of them are the tree of life. So you just you see this throne room imagery, and this council idea all throughout Scripture, but you also see rebellion. You see rebellion on an earthly level and you see rebellion on a heavenly level. Now stick with me here. If you're starting to phase out and you're just like, I don't know why we're talking about all this stuff. We are so close. Don't phase out. It matters. It matters. Human rebellion. We talk about the fall in the Garden of Eden with, the, with Satan and his temptation. But do you remember the, the Tower of Babel in Genesis chapter 11? It says, all mankind came together to try to build. Let me rephrase a man-made mountain that could reach the heavens so that they can make a name for themselves. Do you remember what God does when he sees them trying to be him and not trust him? He divides the nations. He scatters them using language, but not just language. 
Deuteronomy 32.8 says that when he divided the nations, he also divided them according to the number of the sons of God. Whoa. Wait a second. What does that mean? It means that divine counsel we were just talking about now has God-given authority over different regions of the world. It's from God, and they were supposed to rule on his behalf in the same way that we are supposed to rule on his behalf in the natural world. Do you see the parallels here between the spiritual and the physical? It matters that you do because here's this next point, and this is where it's gonna start to take shape for our text and moving forward. Genesis chapter six is another one of those passages we just wanna pass over when it talks about heavenly rebellion. It says, the sons of God, remember that's that same phrase we've heard several times already, saw that the the daughters of man were attractive and they took as their wives any they chose. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward when the sons of God came into the daughters of man and they bore children to them, these were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. Friends, this is in the Bible. And we pass over it because we're uncomfortable with it. But let me make it very clear what's going on in this passage. The sons of God, his divine counsel, those spiritual image bearers of God, rebel against God at this moment, not according to Milton in Paradise Lost, but remember, Milton is not the Bible. Most of us have this view of a prehistoric angelic rebellion. It's not biblical. This is. How do they rebel? They actually take them as wives. The sons of God start to come together with the daughters of Eve, and they produce giants. The Nephilim, giants. Make no mistake about it, they're creating image bearers, human beings created in their image to build their kingdom and their world. Now, some of you are still looking at me like I have three heads. Have you heard the story of Hercules? You're like, yeah, that's a myth. That's not real. You're right. It's just like every other thing that's true in the scriptures that gets corrupted by the culture around it. Oh, there's a divine counsel that God talks about. We're going to have our divine counsel too, and we're going to make ours better. We're going to make ours stronger. We're going to make ours richer. And sometimes there's overlap in terms of how true things actually are. But Gilgamesh, Hercules are just two examples in different cultures of what they talked about in terms of their mighty men, their giants of old, who were the coming together of the divine and the human. So you see all throughout the the ancient Near East, this rebellious creation that is being created and is actually there. In these particular cases, these are good guys, but our God makes it very clear that it was actually rebellion that was on the sco- in the scope of things. This is what harem warfare is all about. Why do we just take this detour? Well, because harem warfare is all about inheritance. Make no mistake about it. You have the children of God who are God's inheritance. In this particular case, Israel. And they are to be given the promised land. That's his inheritance. But in the promised land, it has been taken over by the children of rebellious little gods, Elohim. It is kingdom versus kingdom. It is God's people, Israel, against their enemies, the Nephilim, or the Rephaim is another way to say that, the giants. Which is why, friends, when God's people finally get into the promised land, and yet they're still oppressed by their enemies, the the Philistines, then you have this little shepherd boy who's a man after God's own heart, and he comes together and randomly starts to fight a giant named Goliath. It has always been a spiritual battle 
first. It has always been a spiritual battle, primarily. Yes, it takes shape in our lives. Yes, it takes shape in our world. But if you don't see the spiritual side and you're not willing to lean in and be challenged and stretched to see this worldview, you'll miss the implications on all of our lives, which is where we're going to go next. Because Yahweh rules and nothing is going to stop him from his inheritance. Nothing, which remember in Deuteronomy was Israel. But in Psalm chapter 2, not New Testament, Psalm chapter 2, it says this. Yahweh speaks to his son and says, ask of me and I will make the nations your inheritance. In other words... The plan has always been not just to get back this little piece of land called Canaan, but to take back all of the land called earth and all of the people made in the image of God. Don't miss the bigger picture here, friends. We see that play out with Rahab, don't we? When God comes and Rahab, who is not of the people of God, don't miss this. She's not of the people of God. But what happens? She asks the spies, will Yahweh deliver me? Right? And, she, and the answer is chesed, my favorite Hebrew word, which means covenant faithfulness. It's translated kindness in our text. And it's oftentimes missed. She's saying, I know your God is the God of chesed. And I'm asking for that chesed in my life. I will show you the same chesed by keeping your secrets Will God be faithful to me? And not only is God faithful to her, but God brings her through her own redemptive story. Did you miss it? Do you remember what happens with Rahab? When when the spies say, here's what we want you to do. We want you to take this cord that just so happens to be crimson, red. I want you to hang it out of your window. And your whole family needs to gather in that room so that when, I'm going to use this word very particularly, when the angel of the Lord comes and sees that red cord. He will pass over your home and you and your whole family will be saved. Did you miss that the first time? Rahab is being invited into the story of redemption. She's being marked out by randomly a red cord. Not randomly at all. Specifically a red cord to hearken us back to what just happened with God's people in the Passover. If any of them leave, their blood is on their heads. But if they're covered by the blood, they're safe. And it doesn't just end there. He says, it's our life for yours. He talks about this ransom idea, which should move our hearts and our heads forward a little bit to exactly what Jesus came to do. My life for yours. This is the chesed of God. My blood over you. This is the chesed of God. And what's really cool is there are a lot of Jewish theologians who believe they know one of the identities of one of the two spies that went in um, to to visit Rahav and to spy out the land. And his name was Salmon. Imagine being called Salmon. Your parents must have really hated you, right? (laughs) Like, why does it matter that we know Salmon? Because Salmon marries Rahab. And so here you see the one sent to help save Rahab is also her husband. And who does that make you think of right away? But our Jesus. And Rahab and Salmon come together, and do you know what their baby's name was? Boaz. And do you know who Boaz marries? another woman of the nations, Ruth. And they have a baby. Remember his name? Obed. And Obed fathers Jesse. And Jesse fathers David. David, A man after God's own heart, who is then the great, 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 great grandfather of our Jesus. The overcomer, friends cries out for the chesed of God. And God comes and doesn't just deliver her, but keeps her name 
in the history of faith, the hall of heroes forever because she is a mother of Jesus, a great, 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 great grandmother of the living God, of Jesus in flesh. This foreign woman, ask of me, my son, and I will give you the nations. And Jesus said, I'm asking and I'm coming and I'm not gonna stop until all of my inheritance is mine. Yahweh rules. He rules. He rules. He rules not just for Rahab, but he rules for us. When we consider this same invitation, friends, into the chesed of God, his promises, his covenant faithfulness, he says, all who come to me, I will not cast out any. Come underneath the blood of this spotless lamb. Put your faith in me. You already know your story's messy, Rahav. But remember the name I've given you, Overcomer. I've not missed you. I've seen the things you've had to carry. I know the weight and the shame. I know the hopelessness. And I am faithful to you. It's the reason why you're here this morning, friends. God wants you to know he is faithful to you. Chesed. He's given his life for you so that the things you already know you deserve will never be yours. They will only ever pass over you because they passed right through him. That is the story of our Jesus, our Savior, our husband as the church, and our friends. It's also the reason why, friends, it mattered that we talked about the giants. You're like, oh no, here we go again, the giants. Here's the reason why it matters. Because the same giants that they were facing back then are the same giants that we're facing today. The same giants. The Bible itself tells us that the Rephaim, which means giants, are the dead warrior kings. Translation, the giants who died, their disembodied spirits, you know what we call them today? Demons. Now, some of you are like, okay, I'm just, I'm, I'm done with this. I don't want any more of this giant demon talk. Can I tell you, friends, how many times I have sat across the table from someone in a healing and deliverance session and heard those deeply woven lies in their soul, the giants that we call shame and guilt and fear, the giant that comes in and abuses little children and teaches little ones to believe that they're just especially disgusting so that they live believing that those nasty thoughts that they've only ever had that seem a little bit too nasty actually originate in them. I'm one of those kids. But no longer. There are deeply woven identity lies. We are taught from our earliest days because we are attacked by the enemy. It doesn't mean we don't sin. It doesn't mean our heart isn't deceitful. Don't hear that. Not everything is a demon. But if we don't ever face the influences and the attacks that come at us when we're little kids, all we do is live out of that reality and then act like a little kid. And so that 12-year-old that comes out of you every time you're triggered, that 8-year-old that throws a fit every time you're scared, please know that you've bought a bag of tricks if you think you have to live that way. Jesus came to set you free. He came to drive back the darkness with the kingdom of light. 
It's why everywhere Jesus went, he declared the good news of what he was about to do at the cross and its implications, which were simply this, the demons will listen to me. Everywhere he went, he cast out demons. Everywhere he went, he healed the sick. Everywhere he went, he declared the good news. And friends, if we're not doing all of those things together, we've misunderstood what it means to be his. And we are missing the giants in our lives. Yes, those giants can take the form of bullies and of stressful decisions and of earthly things. But friends, you just very patiently sat through a long explanation of how the spiritual realm and the physical realm have always overlapped and will one day not just overlap, they'll be the only reality we know. And so as Christians, even though it hasn't been our norm, and it's very weird to talk about spiritual realms and divine councils and, and these angels and women and what is that stuff going on? Beloved, what that stuff is going on is called rebellion. And it's rebellion that has implications on our lives today that we call the demonic darkness. Our God wants to set us free. The question is, are you willing to face your giants? Our calling, friends, is to live as those who believe that Yahweh rules, to live like them. So overcome, Rahav, and fight for the inheritance that is always already ours. Three ways to do that, and we're done. Three ways. First, welcome the heralds. It's very easy to just dismiss those who come with the news that you think is unbelievable. Just like when the women went to the tomb of Jesus and the angels, the heralds said, why do you look for the dead amongst the living? Why do you look for the living amongst the dead? Sorry, I screwed that one up. Why do you look for the living amongst the dead? He's not here, he has risen. None of them thought that was possible, even though he said it over and over and over again. If those women chose not to believe and just walk away, not lean in to what the heralds were saying, they would have missed out on the glory of that Jesus. But they did believe, and they leaned in, and they went and shared, and the world changed as a result. Welcome the heralds. Second, come under the scarlet. Come underneath the blood of Jesus. The way we do that, friends, is by first putting our faith in him. And if you've never put your faith in Jesus, today can be your day. It doesn't take anything other than simply admitting, Jesus, I need you. Here's my heart. I give it to you. I want to follow you. Your version of what I just said. You know what he always says to that? Maybe. Let me see what my calendar is like, right? Or let me see how bad your list is. I don't know. He says, of course. I've already paid the price on the cross. The lamb has already been slaughtered. The door has already been painted. Just walk in and find your healing and freedom forever in Jesus. But friends, he also wants us to leave the walls when they come tumbling down. We're going to talk more about this in the weeks to come. But Rahab, when she was set free, she had to leave everything behind. Her old gods that ruled that city, we'll talk about them. Her family and all of its inheritance, we'll talk about that. But also control over her future. She didn't just get saved from some tumbling rocks. She got saved into a family and had to learn to actually live in that freedom. Or to put it the way Paul puts it to the church in Rome. You've not been given a spirit that makes you a slave again to fear. But you have been given the spirit of sonship, adoption into the family of God that allows you to cry out to God Almighty as Abba, Father. He wants us, friends, to learn to walk in the spirit with the love of the Father, 
that sets us free from all of our past, that sets us free from all of our oppression, that sets us free from all attacks to walk in it. Can I tell you, I have not slept very much in the last two days. I've been under attack because of this sermon. The enemy does not want you to know this. He does not want our eyes to be open. He wants to take out the herald. And Jesus said no. Jesus said no. Because friends, we have to walk through life this way. We have to open up our eyes. We're the only ones who have the Holy Spirit. We're the only ones who can help. And if we don't use the the authority we've been given in Jesus to help set the captives free, then every one of us will walk around calling slavery freedom. And like the Israelites, we will yearn to go back to Egypt to eat the sacred raisin cakes because we've not tasted and seen the bounty of the freedom of God. At this point, I've been a part of hundreds of healing and deliverance sessions. And I can tell you, friends, there is very little more glorious that even comes close to watching the healer heal and the king drive back the darkness and give hope where all there was before was bondage. Where are you wrestling? Afraid to even believe this, discounting it as nuts and crazy. You've already decided maybe you're not coming back. That's okay. I hope you do. I want you to like me. (laughs) But I don't need you to like me. I've been given a calling. And I will not waver. The king, friends, wants to set you free. Will you let him? We are here to help. Will you let him? Let's pray. Jesus, you are known as the man of sorrows. You ached for your people to come and find freedom. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how like a mother hen I would have gathered you under my wings, but you would have it not. You don't force us, Lord. You invite us. And I am so thankful that you've not stopped in my own life Because the life I now know, I didn't even dream was possible. The freedom, the wholeness, the joy, the wonder, the glory. And I know it's not just for me. I want it and I know you want it for everyone you've gathered here today in person and online. So we say, here we are, Lord. Would you help us with our doubt and confusion, bring clarity? Would you remove fear in Jesus' name? And God, would you give us the courage to simply take one step, put one foot in front of the other, and to pursue the one who says, come to me, all of you who are weak and heavy laden and I will give you rest for I am the restorer of your soul. Jesus, thank you that you took down the giant. Sin and death have been defeated. The strong man has been bound and we praise you this day. We say hallelujah, Lord Jesus. You are worthy of our praise. But God, we want to be those who in your name follow you. Who know that the war has been won and so the battles can be won as well. 
We want to be free from the influence of those giants in our lives. We want to walk as people after your own heart. And so God, today, we ask that, Lord, you would unite our hearts to yours. And from that place, you would start tearing down the walls. You would start removing the enemy. You would make our hearts ready to participate. And that this would be what you've said it's going to be, and we believe. A year of healing, of getting healthy together, and of double portion double portion of your blessing. We're leaning in and believing, Lord. And we say, yes. Have your way. Have your way. In Jesus' name.